the thing is we have this in causes all the time. You know, I wrote this because like I am grappling all the time. Should I work on campaign finance reform? Should I work? Oh no, I just read that article that said it's all about climate change. Oh no, like we're having a racial justice reckoning right now. I should work on that. Wait, none of this matters if we're still an empire. I need to do anti-imperialist work. And in the end, one of my points I need to make is (laughs) we have a lot of causes to work on. We need people to file in into each of them and to kind of be in contact and in networks with each other, but we need people that are on 25-year walks on specific particular causes, in specific particular places, at specific particular levels, and you are taking up your instrument in the orchestra of the cause if you pick one. Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. We're welcoming today uh, author, podcaster, uh, man about town, Pete Davis, uh, who who is a co-founder of uh, Democracy Policy and author of the book uh, Dedicated, and as well uh, has been involved with the Current Affairs magazine in uh, the, a podcast uh, a context and maybe some other ways that I am less aware of. Um, but uh, feel free to clarify any of those points, Pete. But welcome to the show. So glad to be here. I am a longtime listener and always great to pass through the the mirror to the other side yeah <laughs> so this, this but just you know kind of kick us off here um the book is is uh it's called dedicated it comes out tomorrow you know recording this on the third it, it will be out by the time you're listening to this um and you are you're you're talking about commitment um and you know community and uh you know the 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 ways that like people can you know kind of distract themselves uh you know lose lose sort of like a focus or a meaning in life by um you know failing to like sort of jump in and sort of commit put their time into certain organizations and so i think i'd like you to start out by uh, explain to us how this differs from like conservatism as it is maybe, you know, advertised by Republicans. You know, I think that a lot of people maybe naively will say, well, you sound like a conservative. You're talking about community. You're talking about religion. You're talking about bowling, you know, or, 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 you know, it's like you make DSA sound like, uh, you know, like, like, uh, like going to church or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And I think there's an important distinction to be made there, and maybe that's a good place to sort of jump off. So, so what is it? What what is the case for uh, community um, in in the types of things you're talking about that isn't just like the Chamber of Commerce? Yes. So, I, yeah, I would say you've identified something special about the book, something weird about the book, which is depending on how you think about it, um, which is that it kind of is in this rare genre that has. You know, I'm very into this genre, so I know there are other examples, but it is rare, which is could be called by some like a left conservative book, Um, small C conservative in the left as in the sense of fighting for lefty causes, you know, fighting against hierarchy, fighting for justice, deepening democracy. Um, But small C conservative in the sense holding up kind of traditional virtues of, you know, fidelity, loyalty, consistency, patience, things like this. Um, And, you know, one of my goals with this and having this type of book is that you usually do only get right conservative types of books. You get, you know, someone telling you to make your bed and be loyal, but then they also tell you to, you know, uh, support hierarchy, fight against democracy, fight for capitalism yeah. or something like that. To clean your and room, bucko. That's what lobsters your room. would do, okay? <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> um, but one of the points I'm trying to make with this is that all of the heroes of the left you know, uh, you know, people can enjoy this. People hopefully can find uh, uh, usefulness in this book, even if you're not a fellow member of the ideology. But for those that are, all of our heroes are examples, usually, of long haul heroes. 
take an example of like someone who has the bona fides, Bernie Sanders. It's a story of a, of a five decade walk. It's a story of patience. It's a story of loyalty and fidelity. When there were many moments when he could have chosen to kind of fight for himself, he decided to fight for a cause bigger than himself. All of the people we care about, you know, the, and all of the movements we care about, like the abolitionist movement. I have a story um, in the book. It's my favorite story in the book. It's of um, the day the Emancipation Proclamation came down. The abolitionists actually all got together in Boston and had a party and they were all there. It was like um, it was at two different places. Uh, The Boston Music Hall was the kind of highbrow Boston Brahmin party with the poets and they played Mendelssohn. And then down the street at the Tremont Temple, they had like rousing speeches with people who were kind of deeper in the cause. And Harriet Beecher Stowe was there. Um, uh, William Lloyd Garrison that was there. Frederick Douglass was there. Um, And I tell the story that they were all having this party. But then as I go through what they were each doing at the party, I flash back to where their long haul journey started. And it's like Harriet Beecher Stowe started, started 17 years prior. Ralph Waldo Everson started giving speeches against slavery 25 years prior. Frederick Douglass escaped from slavery and started giving, you know, speeches. William Lloyd Garrison founded the liberator 30 years prior. And it's a story about how, if we want those celebrations, if we want the last day where, the last piece of fossil fuel comes out of the ground or the last day, you know, where the majority of firms are corporately managed instead of cooperatively managed. We need to start our long hauls now. And that if we do, we might have those long awaited celebrations as well. Sorry for the long haul winded. No, no, I I, I love that. That is kind of the connection. I I just want to reaffirm the importance of, of your book and this type of project, because um, commitment, loyalty, like freedom, these are things that are strangely uh, appropriated by the right and, and should not be exclusive to the right. In fact, it's really important that we reappropriate them for the left. But as you say, I think people across the ideological spectrum can enjoy and learn from this book. Uh, that said, this is left anchor, baby. So this is a very leftist book, in my opinion. And let me, let me tell you why I think, right? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it, 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 even look, it, it obviously comports well with uh, those people of faith and there's a lot of leftists of faith. But Ryan, does it not also have a lot in common with Martin Hogland, this life and, yeah. and the, the way that democratic socialism is connected to the kind of commitments that you can make free to be free to make the commitments that you want to make to establish the communities, the relationships, attend to things, contribute to things and to people in the ways that, uh, that truly make us human, right? And, and that lead to things like justice and lead to, uh, liberation for all, right? So, um, may, maybe Pete, you can situate that this kind of project, which is a sort of solution to the context that your subtitle uh, features, right? So dedicated the case for commitment in an age of infinite browsing, right? And so maybe you can speak to, to this kind of um, diagnosis, this, this, this problem we have uh, individually, interpersonally, collectively today, uh, and tell us maybe what, what infinite browsing is. Yeah. You know, it's funny, the book I'm, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm from the world of lefties. You know, most of the things I write about are, you know, all the normal things you read in all the lefty magazines. But it's funny, I've written this book that currently in the Dewey Decimal System is categorized officially in the official book database as a self-help book. Um, and it says it on the back of the cover. And my family's yeah. been making fun of it for me. I uh, No, no, I 100% support this. You got to get in there and you got to displace <laughs> Oprah and the Secret and Jordan Peterson and all these other. No, see, this is the thing. This is revolutionary, Pete. This is revolutionary because you're reconfiguring, redefining what the self is. Because the self is the embedded self, the self in relation. It's McIntyre's self. It's not the unencumbered self. You, you did it, baby. You're you're changing the whole Dewey Decimal System. Yeah, you're doing entryism on self-help, and I am I am here for it. Honestly, <laughs> yeah, we we must we must we must bring the fight to every corner, including that's right. Um, that's right. I'm sorry for imminent yeah. imminent the critique tim- imminent. Yeah. Critique of self. I want my dream is to get on the Tim Ferriss show and you know slowly <laughs> start making the case like between you know different ways to lift and different vitamin stacks how you can you know uh, make a commitment to causes bigger than yourself such as our causes. But um, you know, the, yeah, the, the funny thing is the book kind of un un 
unwinds into being about everything and being about society and culture, but it actually starts with, and this is my edit, thanks to my editor who said, you have to put your weird idiosyncratic ideological stuff in the back and you have to put normal stuff in the front. (laughs) And so the front of the book begins with this psychological thing that you know, we've all experienced, which is the experience of, I actually start with a goofy example, which is the experience of the Netflix home screen where you have a thousand movies to choose and you end up, you know, spending 30 minutes trying to decide what movie to watch out of the pain and fear of choosing the wrong one and having to close doors on the other a thousand. Um, but in the end, the the lesson of the Netflix home screen is you choose a movie and it ends up being fine. And and it's much better. Any movie you choose, even a bad one, is better than living in the home screen for 30 minutes. And that's kind of the message I'm sending about life, because, you know, the reason I wrote this is because, you know, one of the the rivers of experience that went into this is as I was in college and as it, you know, ramped up even more when I was in law school is the number one message we were told by elders was keep your options open. Um, and yeah. it in, engendered this total fear of regret and fear of missing out and fear of closing doors. You know, when I went into law school, they have polling on this. 70% of the people in my law school class wanted to go into public interest work, um, particular things. Um, And then 70% went into corporate interest work when they graduated. And money is part of that and debt's part of that. And there's a lot of stories, reasons that are part of that. But when I actually talk to people about, well, what is the reason you are choosing this, even though I know you want to do something else? They always said, well, this job will preserve my options. And it's like the, um, you know, this moving to this place will preserve my options. Not marrying young will preserve my options. Not getting associated with this controversial cause will preserve me to, you know, preserve my, uh, uh, you know, save your, your, uh, uh, gunpowder, keep your powder dry for later. Um, it's all, it's kind of option promotion all the way down. And yet, the people that have the most impact, the heroes of our causes and the people that are the most, that have the most joy, the people that are the most serene in their life are the ones who totally ignored that advice. They're the ones on the grandest level who said, you know, Evan Wolfson, who did a 32 year fight for marriage equality, Medea Benjamin, who started Code Pink in 2001 and is still putting on her pink shirt and fighting imperialism 25 years later Two of the smallest level of my friends back home who, you know, when you have a friend back home who you 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 send the group text to the other friends. Oh, Billy's really going for it. He's really going to become a Brazilian jiu-jitsu instructor. Or Diana's really going for it. She's really going to marry that guy. Or James is really going for it. He's really moving back and going to run for mayor or something. Um, it's all people who dove into something who have the impact and have the joy. And so that's the kind of psychological, personal message at the beginning of it. Yeah, I, I definitely related to that a lot. Um, you know, I, I think we've all we've all been there, if not the Netflix Netflix home screen. Personally, me at the uh, you know like the torrent search bar. Uh, 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 don't break laws, folks. Uh, parody. This is parody. <laughs> uh, but you know, like thinking about literally, I could watch virtually any movie ever made. Which one will I watch? Uh, shit, you know and. And you're, you're totally right that, that like, it's very easy to just think, well, you know, and just get distracted. And then suddenly hours have passed and, you know, you've just wasted time, uh, you know, scrolling Twitter or something like that. And, uh, you know, it would be better if you just pick something and then worst case scenario, you know, you, you know, a movie that's, that's no good. And, uh, you can sort of cross it off your list of movies that you like or shows or whatever. Um, but one thing that I, that I think you're right to emphasize is that, uh, jumping, you know, making a commitment, you know, it involves some risk. You talked about Martin Hogland. I think this would be, this makes a nice pairing with our, our Hogland, uh, uh, two-parter, um, that, um, a commitment is always a risk because you may make the wrong decision. And you're not saying that, uh, you know, to commit to something is to say, like, this <laughs> right. is for Don't sure. Don't change the your right mind thing. ever. Just just yeah, just stick with that, whatever it was. <laughs> it, you're you're making a you're you're making a, a, a risky decision. And so 
uh, it, it's it's not that you know you should never change your mind. You should never like divorce or or you know end a relationship that isn't working. It's not that. It's that sometimes you got to just go for it, as you say, and um, you know uh, uh, take a chance on something because the the I, I think what you're what what people tend to miss is that uh, not choosing is itself a risk that is easy to overlook. And, um, I, I, it reminds me of the, I'm thinking of that Pink Floyd lyric. It's like, uh, t- uh, That that uh, it's it's very easy to delay things and uh, not you know choose something out of the menu of options and then here you are you know you're you're in your mid thirties and you're still in the same place where you don't know what to do and or it's like the opening of Train Spotting choose life choose a job choose a fucking big television <laughs> I chose not to choose life I chose heroin it's it's a little bit like that. A little bit. It's a little bit like that. Exactly. A little bit like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, you've kind of identified something, which is, you know, I have a whole section on in praise of quitting. I have a whole section on people who kind of found themselves after it. I have a whole section on saying this actually isn't about like existential commitments. You know, I'm yeah. not like, you know, I, I used to have a line about the billion year contract that Scientologists had to like have to sign. It's like, it's not about the billion year contract. It's about the power of 10 year, you know, 10 year commitments even, or even for things that are usually a month long are making it a year long. You know, it's about making it a little bit more sticky. And then it's also about you feel all the fears of picking wrong, but I want to instill the fear of not picking at all in you too. It's, it's basically trying to balance that life in the hallway is an automatic bad choice. Whereas choosing a door along the way might be a good choice. And I actually go as far as to say more likely than not by a lot, the factors that will make it a good choice is your commitment to it, not the necessary first decision when it happens. And, you know, this, this is one thing I want to say, you know, listeners are probably like, why are we on the self-help hour here on left anchor? But the thing is we have this in causes all the time. You know, I wrote this because like I am grappling all the time. Should I work on campaign finance reform? Should I work? Oh no, I just read that article that said it's all about climate change. Oh no. Like we're having a racial justice reckoning right now. I should work on that. Wait, none of this matters if we're still an empire. I need to do anti-imperialist work. And in the end, one of my points I need to make is (laughs) we have a lot of causes to work on. We need people to file in into each of them and to kind of be in contact and in networks with each other, but we need people that are on 25 year walks on specific particular causes in specific particular places at specific particular levels. And you are taking up your instrument in the orchestra of the cause. If you pick one and (laughs) go in there. And I like telling stories of, you know, Lori Wallach, who is our kind of woman fighting for us in the international trade deals or Evan Wolfson who fought for marriage equality or others who are kind of taking the fight on everything to a specific town. Um, we need the cause needs you to pick something as well too. And, And it needs excellence, which comes from cultivating experiential wisdom, prudential wisdom in relating to things and to people, right? And so like, if you don't stick with something, you you literally can't become excellent at it or in relation to it. And, and you, you can't overcome the inevitable conflict, the inevitable fear, the inevitable obstacles to achieving things that serve people, right? Yeah, it's funny. I, you know, I really, you know, I've cared since a young age, like probably both of you and many of the listeners that you know, since a young age, you you face all the problems in America. You have this desire of trying to figure out what is our path forward? How do we solve the problems? And I 
you know, I, when I was in college and in law school and reading as like in my twenties, I kept trying to look for like tips and tricks and engineering tactics and strategy that were going to be the yeah. silver bullet of solving each Solutions, of these problems. Yeah, right, and yeah. the thing is, strategy is very important and theory is very important. I don't want, you know, rabid fans telling me like, why are you dismissing <laughs> theory and strategy and tactics? There are really bad theories and strategies and tactics that we need to excise and stuff. And we need to get some good ones going. But what I found when you look at the people who actually had an impact, they're all improvisationists. They're all people who are facing a bunch of different random things that came at them and slowly developing the experiential wisdom that you talked about and adapting to it. And the thing that runs the through line through everything they do is not a specific tactic, not a specific strategy, not even usually a specific theory, but it's just their commitment to continue to grind at it, you know, come at it from different angles, figure it out for years on end. And usually they, uh, you know, if you do, you usually make some progress. And that, <clears throat> that ties into another thing I wanted, I wanted to, uh, to hit on, to, to ask you about, um, the, the, the idea of, of, uh, you might call it social identity. Um, you know, because one of the things that I think, uh, that, that you hit on very, very well in the, in the book is, this idea of the authenticity of the self and, and, um, you know, why, one reason why people are sort of instructed to, uh, uh, spend the time in the hallway, as you say, is that there is supposed, like you're supposed to try to figure out the things that are best suited to a sort of like pre existing self that is, somehow you know distilled from the celestial ether or you know it's like uh, imparted to you by uh uh your genetics or whatever and you point out rightly that all 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 notions of identity all self is socially mediated and constructed like you can lie about what you really think you can be dishonest but what you, what you are is in the last analysis foundationally social and uh interdependent um and and uh you know you you sort of choosing to like double like jump into some activist cause or another is going to to change how you are how what you think what you believe you know uh what your priorities are and that's good because it's like that's what it means to be human. To be human is to be social. You know, this is why solitary confinement is torture, because to be deprived of all human contact is, I mean, it'll literally drive you insane. I mean, it's a it's a it's a deeply um, terrible experience to be deprived of all human contact for for, you know, weeks or months or years or whatever. Um, and this is why, you know, we need to. Uh, abolished prisons as they exist in the United States, but on a, you know, more, funda more fundamentally, um, you know, like the, who we are is always, it's always changing. It's always a product of our environment and it's always, uh, you know, mediated by the people that we happen to be interacting with, by our social relations, as Marx would say. Um, and so can you, can you talk about that? Like, that that the kind of uh you know the 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 false belief that is inculcated by so many uh, uh types of yeah. you know self help <laughs> basically indoctrination Pete can, can can you explain to us how existence precedes essence please <laughs> <laughs> yeah I actually have the answer to that in the book so um, yeah I'm so glad you this is why I'm so glad I'm here on Left Anger um it's uh, you you pulled out like the there's there's kind of an iceberg of deep things in my heart and deep readings that couldn't make it to the surface, but are in the subtext of the book. And you've pulled one of them out, which is, you know, um, 
I, so I talk about three fears, maybe the normalist way to come at this is I talk about three fears of commitment and two of them are ones you've heard about before fear of regret. And I'll just breeze by them. Fear of regret is the fear that I'm going to wake up 20 years later and wish I committed to something else. The other is fear of missing out, which is I'm happy with what I committed to, but it means I can't go to every party or be everywhere with everyone, uh, having everything, um, that we also, you know, a lot of people write about fear of missing out. The weird one that I think isn't talked about enough is what I call in the book, the fear of association. It's the, we don't commit to things because we fear it will bring chaos. It will implicate our identity, our reputation and our sense of control. So, you know, and I talk about, you know, it's the fear that, oh, if I come out for this presidential candidate, or if I say I'm Catholic, or if I say I, you know, I'm, if I move to this town and there's a reputation for the types of people that move to this town or the, you know, in union organizing, it's, I am not, you know, uh, union organizers will tell you running into someone who says, I am a good worker. I'm a good yep. employee. They, they don't say worker yet. They say I'm a good employee and <laughs> I am not someone who makes trouble. I just do my work well um, and, and get along with everyone. That is all about the fear of association. It will, I will be implicated by this. The reason I say we have the fear of association is exactly what you talk about. My theory of that is basically we think we are, we think of that, we have this fear a lot when we are taught that our self is isolated and static. You know, I love sushi. My favorite band is the Rolling Stones. I cheer for the Lakers. I'm an electrician. It's like I used to say, uh, I was thinking I'd say in interviews, oh, it's like a Facebook profile, but Facebook hasn't had that thing for like 10 years. But for all of us who were on Facebook 10 years ago, you would like fill out a quiz about who you are and like be placed with people in your static self. Um, And your goal when seeking out things to connect to Usually it's like consumer micro targeted consumer brands, but like finding a club, finding a partner, finding a religion, finding a political belief. It's you have this really rigid block that you have like anguished over discovering. And then you're trying to like fit the Tetris block exactly into the other thing. And then you're like, nothing fits with my exact self until the like artificial intelligence perfects like the perfect thing to fit with each of us. Until the micro targeting gets to one basically um, is the only time we will be able to make connections with things. Whereas there's an alternate way to think about the self, the self that John Dewey talked about, the self that is that emerges, as you said, is emergent and embedded. It is not static. It's constantly changing. It's organically embedded and it arises out of your connections. You become a Texan by moving to Texas and throwing yourself into Texas. You become a Catholic and it transforms you when you become a Catholic or you become a, a, or you convert to Islam or something. You become a DSA member and that makes you who you are. You become the in my case, the husband of Lark, my wife. And, um, and I am different because I've made that commitment. And out of that, you see the connections and the commitments and the opportunities for them, not as a threat to yourself, not as this is going to ruin me, the self that I've preciously discovered, but as this is the only way I can become who I am. Um, Bob Dylan was interviewed in that weird Martin Scorsese uh, documentary that was half fiction, what was like the rolling Jubilee. And he has this line that I love. It's like very haunting. He goes, they're like, did you go out to find yourself? And he goes, nobody finds, nobody finds themselves. They make themselves. And that's the truth. <laughs> nobody, f- you don't find yourself. You make yourself no. by making decisions about who you want to be. Um, and that becomes your identity. I, I don't know. Does that resonate at all? Is that, does that connect with what you were saying? Is that Absolutely. a Yes. No, exactly. Yeah. It, it, it makes me think a lot of uh, Hannah Arendt actually. And, and I, <clears throat> Forgive me, I've just been listening to uh, senior philosophy majors give their thesis presentations, but I'm thinking of Arendt and how, um, you know, the political is is defined by action and acting in concert. And, and you know, she goes to the kind of philological root of act. To, to act is to begin, right? To begin anew. And, and she has this understanding of natality as, as the kind of... Uh, powerful ability to create things anew. And of course, this ties into our understanding of revolution and to our, our friend uh, Harvey K, Professor Harvey K's understanding from Thomas Paine that we have it in our power to begin the world uh, all over again, right? Um, 
that there's something very powerful politically in, in dedicating yourself, committing yourself, because it's, it's a kind of action in the sense that, um, you don't know what the consequences are. You don't know what the reactions will be. You don't know, as you say, how you'll be transformed by getting married or how you'll be transformed by the DSA. Uh, and so that, that leap of faith is crucial though, because it's in contrast to what Arendt called, you know, homo faber, which is like to control things to make the world by yourself. You have this image in your mind and you, you sculpt it and you have total control and you just make it. And then it's done and finished, right? And, and you've made this artifact that's dead and static. Instead, like to be political, to be uh, social, is to be involved in dynamic relationships where your action has counter reactions and you're involved in a collective dynamic process that has all kinds of creative potential. And that's really exciting and not boring at all, actually. Yeah, you know, I talk about in the that that really resonates with this theme because it's, you know, it's two ways. One is when I talk about in the chapter on the fear of association and how to overcome it. I talk about it's incredibly messy to join a community. You know, this is why, you know, I, I, I say this is why we all need to be very merciful, merciful defined as by the father, James Keenan, my favorite definition of mercy, willingness to enter into the chaos of others. You know, people annoy you. They belittle you. Right. They condescend to you. They misunderstand we you. against each other all the time. We trespass right? against each other all the time. Every all the time. community. And the yep. only way you form community, the only way you get through the valley from independent security, the certain level of independent security and power you have alone, you have some when you're alone, then you have to pass through the valley of community building and uncertainty and transformation and you get towards community, solidarity, friendship, and you have a deeper level of security and power at that other end, but you have to kind of go down before you can go up because passing from the joy of sitting alone in your house to the first meeting or the first time when you're making friends, you're like, this is a lot worse than where I was before, but you have to know that at the other end of the Valley, it's a lot, 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 lot better than where you'll be if you never leave the house. So, um, that's kind of, and that's kind of, uh, that's part of the like humbling of community building. You can't, you have to create it together. The garden you plant will bloom in a way you can partially control. You can partially decide where the seeds go. You can partially decide what type of fertilizer and water, but it's going to come out in its own way too. A second part that is kind of connected to the start with this idea of this being like a left conservative book is, um, I wanted to open up a Vista where, roots are not just from the past. Like the right wing will only say basically the only precious inheritance is the precious inheritance of the past. Like that's the like Burke line, I guess, or the Oak shot line. And I've always forget where it comes from, but um, it's like, we have all this precious things from the past and all we can do is preserve it and it can only be ruined or something, you know, but there's this wonderful line from the philosopher Roberto Unger, who's a total futurist. And he says, our roots lie in the future. They can also lie in the future. Anyone who founded a nation, you know, um, anyone who, who founded a vision or a utopian vision in any form um, says, I see a beautiful inheritance in the future. I see it in prophecy, not in memory. And we could preserve that inheritance. I'm like twisting the words of the right by enacting this prophecy, by coming together right now and making, you know, there are good versions and bad versions of whatever, you know, by making France, by making, you know, what, what, you know, Langston Hughes writing about what black America would be like by building socialism as the DSA people would write about. Um, um, There is just as much, of that treasured sap that Simone Vey put in the future yes. in prophecy as there much as in the past in memory. But the future requires commitment, not just inheritance. That's a cool way to put it, to, to, to commit to relationships that actually build that future. I mean, that reminds me of Frederick Jameson, right? We don't want uh, uh, forecasts of the past. We want archaeologies of the future, Right. And it's this orientation to kind of um, building the future and being rooted in a future by how we commit now in the present. Uh, I think it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. I'm, I appreciate that. Yeah, no, and I could bring that down to I was kind of sounding really uh, fluffy and uh, up in the clouds about it. But like, let's just take a practical example. It's like, you know, 
I'll just do it in my town. I, I live in this kind of hunky dory, like Wobegon town outside of uh, DC. And this guy, Howard Herman, uh, invented our town's farmer's market, like a tiny little prophecy. And it begins. Our, I love archaeology of the future. I, I wish I, I wish I'd known that before writing the book. I would have put that in there. It's like it's great line, right? He has a vision. That's what prophecy is. He's like, Oh, a a little micro vision. Maybe in the city hall parking lot, there should be a farmer's market. (laughs) And then, and he kind of sits with his imagination. All ideas start with imagination. He looks around and he's like, Oh, maybe there'll be booths and maybe we'll have the cheese section over here and the bread section over here and the flower section over here. And then like, but it's kind of wisps of a thing, just how like wisps of the past and he takes little things. And then he has to put in the long haul work to turn that vision into reality. And that's what kind of a dedicated long haul struggle is. And then eventually you look around and you're there. And now we have a wonderful uh, farmer's market, award-winning small city farmer's market in Falls Church, Virginia. (laughs) Thank you, Howard Herman. We've named a park (laughs) after him. Um, uh, Thanks for his work on doing that. So (laughs) well done. That's awesome. Nice. Yeah, um, I guess I, I, I want to uh, like, I don't know if this is like an American context thing, but 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 to sort of quibble with this idea that that to to um, talk about you know community tradition, um, you know collective endeavors and so on, that that this is conservative at least in an american context i was thinking of this this tweet from sorab amari who is supposedly a a catholic integralist uh which means that he wants to make the u.s into a sort of catholic dictatorship but he said he says in this tweet we like talking about tweets these are the most representative (laughs) parts of american discourse he says, I'm at peace with a Chinese-led 21st century. Late liberal America is too dumb and decadent to last as a superpower. Chinese civilization, especially if it recovers more of its Confucian roots, will possess a great deal of natural virtue. And the thing about China in, in with respect to a Catholic is that it's a communist dictatorship which is intensely hostile to religion, especially Islam, but also Catholicism. And so I think, you know, you see at least again in the American context that there is no consistency in terms of traditionalism, community, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the long-standing moral virtues of society or whatever, anything, you know, having to do with history, it is hierarchy and domination. Here, here we have a guy who is willing to sort of like get behind a secular dictatorship because it is anti-liberal, because it will own the libs, you know, and which let's be fair. We love to own the libs and, but, and would potentially, you know, if if you could imagine this being uh, implemented in the United States, uh, exterminate Catholicism. Um, you know, which is something like 20% of the population, something like that, you know, just like, like crush that. Well, out I'm, I'm sure we're blind. We're blindsiding Pete. I'm sure he has not heard of this take or this tweet <laughs> and has no idea what to think of it. Uh, sorry about that. Pete. But on the, I was, <laughs> was going to say it's, it's in the running for tweet of the year. Probably. I saw it. I was like, that's, that's that, a special submission. That's special. That's special. <laughs> we've got, yeah, we've got nuclear fusion takes, uh, on the podcast, but you know, th- thinking about it from the flip side, you look at something like DSA or the union movement. The union yep. movement is very old. DSA is has been, you know, you can you can look at the org chart of like socialist uh, organizations that have split five billion times. But you can trace DSA back to, you know, Eugene Debs and the original American socialist movement, which is over 100 years ago. And so there's a real there's a tradition on the left uh, that that really does tie back into that that history and that 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 tradition, um, and you know a uh, uh, kind of a American uh, um, identity and history. You know, you talk about Abraham Lincoln and and uh, Frederick Douglass and so on. And so, um, I, I wonder if you uh, could sort of. I don't know. I, I mean, I guess at the end of the day, you're just talking about the definition of words and so on. But but how how the left might think about 
uh, you know, history, tradition, um, you know, preserving the, 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 the good parts of history, not the whole thing. Um, but, but how, you know, how we might, if, if, if you're a lefty listening to this podcast, which is a, a high probability, um, you know, th- uh, tr- trying to salvage the parts of, of history and tradition and um, social institutions that are valuable and, and worth preserving um, and not just saying, okay, we need to do communism. You know, we need, we need to have like a, we need to have like a total revolution and just like, like get, you know, but Ryan, we do need to have communism and we do need a total revolution, but go ahead. <laughs> Rooted yeah, so, in the American experience. Yeah, yeah. No, so go ahead. Oh, there it is. There's okay, some, okay. There's a couple of angles at this. So I'll, maybe I'll start really broad. One is just on the question of community commitments and hierarchy. You know, this is for a future book, but, you know, I, I kind of believe the big challenge in, in saving America you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be, I won't say the world. I don't know. That's above my pay grade. Um, saving America is, I call it the deepening American democracy and deepening American solidarity. And they need to both go at the exact same time. Democracy, I see in kind of a vertical way. It's a fight against hierarchy. It's like the institutionalization of a society that isn't hierarchical, you know, more power to more people in more ways and baking that into the structure of society from the smallest level of democratic relations of like relations of mutual respect to, you know, how do we decide how power is used in the government. Um, But then solidarity is the process of bringing us together to feel part of a shared thing, you know, to see, you know, if democracy is giving space for everyone to realize their dreams, solidarity is everyone seeing each other's dreams as a little bit of their own. And if you have, as some of the conservatives might point out, all democracy, no solidarity, you know, all just the chaos of every empowered person with no one feeling connected to each other, no one feeling part of shared pursuits. It's total cacophony. And if you have all solidarity and no democracy, it's this, it's, you know, I, I don't, I, I'm not an expert in this, but I would guess it's something like the CCP or it's like, yes, exactly. I was thinking exactly right. The the, the former, the former is Reddit and the latter you've identified perfectly. I think those are the two. <laughs> yes, that's exactly it. Yes, it's like, Maybe, right? and we just need to move both at once. And that is a huge challenge. How do you create a community that is non-hierarchical? It's much easier. I think it's yeah. in the short run, much easier to create hierarchical community. And it's much easier yeah. to create cacophonous empowerment. But we got to figure out clever civic engineering, civic experimentation ways through the long haul of, uh, you know, testing out different ways of organizing people of how you do that. Um, This is the left is loath to talk about this, but in order for the messiness of democracy and socialism, which are two ways of saying the same thing, right. uh, uh, To really function properly, you need to cultivate the excellence of relationships and you can't do that without these kind of commitments and, and um, without these kind of uh, being imbricated in the messiness that you talked about, right? Of, of these various uh, things you dedicate yourself to, because that's how we, you get not just the wisdom and experience, but the kind of uh, patience and the other virtues necessary to put up with, I mean, you know, Kurt Vonnegut talked about how loneliness and boredom were the two biggest killers in the country, right? And, uh, you know, it, it, socialists have a lot of meetings, as it's well known, right? Yes. It's boring. It can be boring <laughs> as hell. It can be, you know, just all kinds of infighting, all kinds of nonsense. Uh, but, like, if you're going to not have hierarchy, if you're going to have power democratized – that's not going to work unless you have people who are willing to understand each other's viewpoints and try to have kind of collective visions and collective projects. It, it, it just seems so as, I mean, I think your book is, is pointing out uh, a huge part of the project of the left, which is what's fundamentally required for this to work. Yeah. You know what I mean? I love that, that last line because the whole thing too, it's, it's in some ways I felt like this book is the prequel to any of the substance I'm aiming for this book to be the prequel to any substantive project we care about. Cause it's kind of devoid. If you just, I, I have substance in there, but the idea as a whole you can apply is like, it a lot of ways. Commit yeah. to, it use, my editor was like, you use the word thing like a hundred <laughs> times throughout this. I was like, well, it's about like, 
like it's kind of a meta point, you know, about like committing to things. Um, but but you point out your the heroes you point out though give a little bit of content to that form though because you, you talk about rebels, citizens, patriots, stewards, builders, artisans, companions, and, and you mentioned gardening as well. So 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 like you you do identify very specific yeah like ways commitment to commitments. craft, commitment to institution, commitment to cause. You know, it's all there. One one thing that's funny, I I, I always like this example. Um, if you if you go to any corner, you know, you hear me talk about like fidelity and loyalty and the virtue of patience and the virtue of sticking with the group. You know, people you know people who are being you know not totally wired into this and want to be a little bad faith. They'll be like, this sounds fascist, like uh, crypto crypto conservative or something. But <laughs> listen to union organizers, like listen to Jane McAlevey the great Jane McAlevey talk about the micro project of organizing the basic atomic unit of the left is like a union organizing campaign. The yep. even basicer unit is like a single, uh, d- like conversation between an organizer and right. what they're expecting of a worker. It sounds totally. like the most conservative thing ever. It's like, we need unbreakable. This is like, listen to her talk. Yes. We need yes. unbreakable solidarity between this unit. <laughs> Everyone must be together. Everyone must. This is them. the script that you use. This is how the conversation <laughs> must end. This is the, like, don't yeah. you're a bad person if you get out of line. You know, everyone must wear their buttons and we are going to discipline that and we are calling that a structure test and we are calling ourselves a failure if you are not all aligned in this. Like my proudest moment was when 95% of the Chicago teachers all appeared at the speech and cheered at the same time. You know? And thus proving that we were strike ready, which is the best thing you can be on the left. What is another word for strike ready? It's like having a lot of conservative virtues and connections and solidarity between each other of patience, loyalty, and commitment. But, you know, the thing that makes it left is it's justified. It's made through persuasion. It's made not through bizarre, you know, genetic, um, bizarre genetic and past, you know, solidarity. It's based on visions of the future, shared needs, and a justified way of deciding how decisions are made. But in the meantime you better all wear your button and this isn't a time to like show off your individual authenticity. This is a time to get in line for the collective, but I'll, I'll say something on the total kind of opposite end. How does that look like on a big scale? Does that look like us all saluting the flag? I don't, you know, I don't think that's what, what it is. The, the method, the message I try to say is we need just like a dense ecosystem, organic network of a series of layered differentiated pluralist, sometimes convict conflicting commitments, um, not all alone in atomized structures, not all kind of together in a fascist, you know, solid, but you know, an organic whole, like a rainforest or something, everything connected. My favorite image, I don't think anyone's ever, I want to like write for a like architecture one, one time architecture critic magazine piece, which is if you go to the FDR Memorial, um, yeah, the final scene, it's the best memorial in DC. And I, I grew up here. So I, I really like have my higher, I have my list of top to bottom memorials, best ones FDR. And the final scene of the FDR memorial is this giant waterfall with all these different types of blocks, like in different staggered ways. Like it looks like a rocky formation, but like some are very um, natural looking. Some are very sharpened and patterned. Some are very big. Some are very small and the water is rushing through them. And in some ways, like that's my dream for a pluralist communal democracy. Some projects are going to be very rigid and engineered and big, like Medicare for all or something. Other projects like Al- Alcoholics Anonymous are going to be organic and random. Other projects like the, you know, the Methodist Church are going to be over here. Other projects like DSA working together in your chapter are over here. Other projects like Howard Herman's Farmer's Market are over here. And it looks like, but an energy and a life is running through it. You know, a similar spirit of democracy and solidarity, like, uh, or the national spirit or something. That's what that FDR thing evoked. And that's what the new deal kind of did. While all the other countries were doing fascism, we were doing, uh, you know, a, a simplified story, but a little bit better at kind of a pluralistic democracy that still had kind of a vibe to it. <laughs> yeah. At its yeah. best. 
it also at its worst, it's also has a lot of problems, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we've, we've talked about the, 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 the benefits and the downsides of the new deal a lot. No, we, we've got a, we've got an episode coming up with the uh, Eric Rauschway. Um, so listeners should, should definitely tune into that. Um, I, I wanted to, to, to talk a little bit more about, uh, cultural stuff you talk about a a a kind of a counterculture um in a way that is that is interesting to me um i've become rather suspicious of the of like the counterculture of like uh you know kind of uh cultural contrarianism you know kind of like the punk rock uh ideal in in the way of just sort of trying to piss off the squares, you know, Ryan doesn't like the Ramones. He hates the Ramones. That is not, that is not what I said. The, the Ramones <laughs> in their own context, I think were, were valuable, but I know. Uh, y- yes, of, of course. But you, you, I think that there's a, the, the in, in the way that like counterculture has been in, uh, interpreted and, and, there, there's a there's a downside there. There there's a potential vulnerability. You know, you're you're talking about you know uh, triggering the squares in a way that is kind of content neutral. You know, in in terms of being you know uh, outside of the mainstream of uh, politics, and that can be uh, that can be left wing in the case of a lot of you know sort of like Jimi Hendrix and so on, and the and, and Woodstock and and, uh, 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 you know, uh, various other, uh, examples of, uh, trying to trigger the, the libs more or less, but I think it can be kind of reactionary in a way too, in just being like, well, the, I, I think we see this a lot today, actually in, in how, culture. yeah, like, like, uh, that whole thing, uh, there was a, there, like the CIA did a little, uh, video about how, uh, joining the CIA is, is like female empowerment. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, it's like this, this is the disproof of woke culture and identity politics is a total fabrication. And so, um, I, I would be interested to hear you you know your sort of your 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 perspective on counterculture as you know thinking about it a little bit more deeply in a way that's not just like trying to do like just reflexively the opposite of whatever the CIA happens to be saying you know whether however cynical that might be or not um you know how does that look do you think yeah, you know, so the first thing about counterculture that's funny is you have to to be part of a counterculture. You have to kind of have a sense of what the actual culture is. And so many people that take on kind of counterculture aesthetics, it's like you and everybody else. It's like when yeah. Paul Ryan is listening to Rage Against the Machine and like, you know, tweeting disappointedly. I, I think, yeah, there's like some, always one of my favorite genres. is like sad quotes by reactionaries about like Bruce Springsteen not liking them or something, even though it's their favorite band, like Chris Christie, Paul Ryan listening to Rage Against the Machine, all the others. Um, it's... Uh, you know, that is uh, um, that it's it, the funny thing is like when something's become so dominant, it's no longer a counterculture. And so yeah. when I say counterculture of commitment, what I'm saying is that the actual dominant culture and this is just one angle on the culture who can wrap their hands around the whole culture. But I say one dominant angle, one dominant aspect of the culture is what I call the culture of open options. It's the culture that told me to keep my options open when I was growing up um, and saying that that was valued and saying that that is that is a sign, you know, the ability, uh, the ability to be free from commitments is a is a status symbol. You know, this is from the philosopher Zygmunt Bauman writing about liquid modernity. He says it used to be if I own a giant factory that takes up a lot of land and has a lot of workers, I have status. Now it's I have no workers and therefore I have status because I've contracted them all out. It's your flexibility that gives you status. And that's at the biggest level, at the smallest level. It's, 
you know, I, I talk about it in three angles. I say open options economics is the value of money over particular things. It's the value that says anyone who's the most liquid, who has the most liquid cash, not the people who have committed to particular workers and particular towns and particular, even particular products. Like it's funny, you know, rapacious capitalism eventually eats the the actual corporations themselves, you know, they're willing to be like thrown into mergers and acquisitions for the product that you created because of the rapaciousness of, of, uh, desiring to let's, Oh gosh, I have this big solid thing I created that we value, you know, Oh, look at the entrepreneur that created this big solid thing, but then everything's pushing you to liquefy that and like turn it into money. Um, two is I call it open options morality. It's the, you know, the idea that, you know, all judgment, you know, the, the highest moral order is you don't bother me. I don't bother you. I don't make any comments about you. You don't make any comments about me. We're indifferent to each other. Um, and you're, you know, the highest morality you can do is you do a good job of kind of not bothering them and not, not letting people bother you. And that's good when the bothering was, are you gay or, you know, um, you know, I want to control you as this little town, you know, in this little town when it's oppressive basically, or you're not acting like a woman should act. We obviously are glad to be liberated by that. But when that lack of judgment or lack of, you know, lack of honor says, well, who am I to say who a war criminal is? Or who am I to say if this institution is actually doing good things or not? Who am I to say if the, the, the you know, as a reporter of the New York Times, who am I to say if the institution's gone wayward and I'm just a reporter here, I shouldn't like call it back to its mission or something or the university. And then the final one's open options, um, open options education, which is the idea, I call it advancement versus attachment, which is all of education being about helping you have all the tools to keep your options open and none of it about what Alfred North Whitehead called, funnily, religious education, which he defined, I loved his way he defined this. He said most of religion used to, most of education used to be religious education, now it's not. And I'm like, oh, well, that's good. It's like we need secular education. But what he defined it as is, education that evokes reverence and duty. And, um, and when you have no education that says, here's something to be in awe of, here's something that implicates you, here's something you should work on, you know, that is an education that leaves the only thing that evokes reverence and duty is yourself. And again, if the reverence and duty is the point of this high school is to teach you to adore the flag, it's bad. But if it's, you know, teaching you to, if it never teaches you to fall in love with something or care about a cause bigger than yourself or be part of a community or a practice or a craft bigger than yourself, it's also missing something too. So that's the culture that the counterculture of commitment is rebelling from by committing to places and people and causes and ideas and crafts. It's like this, this dialectic, right? Where there's initially this uh, righteous resistance to, to, uh, hierarchical, oppressive, patriarchal, um, you know, subjection and conformity and forcing you into a certain thing that individually you feel righteously the need to rebel against and say, no, I want to choose for myself. But that is insufficient for a meaningful life. If all you have is yourself, you can't be the ground of your own being. And so the next step then is to rejoin communities that are free of oppression and, and uh, are truly uh, democratic and, and in our sense, socialist, right? I think, right? That to, to define how we should live unencumbered by those oppressions, but encumbered by our free commitments to each other. And I think that's a beautiful and, and uh, you know, really important theoretical foundation for uh, an emancipatory uh, vision, my friend. A, a much less eloquent way that I put it, it was it just much dumber way was I just said, <laughs> you need liberation, but you also need dedication. And you put Absolutely, the beautiful way of, you have the beautiful way of saying that, which that. is, that is like the, um, you need to be liberated from inauthentic, unjust communities. And then you need to be, but then if you're right. floating alone in cynicism it's, and anime, yes, you have nothing yes. and you need dedication. I have a really concrete way for listeners out there listening to Chapo Trap House. <laughs> is, <laughs> liberation. You know, is it, it is. No, I want to write a, like a yes. tribute to them. Yeah. You need a giant crowbar buzzsaw, you know, totally. like, like ice pick. To knock Absolutely, off yeah. the ice of smarm, what Tom Skaka called smarm. Like <laughs> the current culture is, is 
like the current dominating hegemon is lathered in smarm. Like Aaron Sorkin is the smarm machine. He lathers right, the totally. thing in smarm. The smarm protects it, you know? And then you need <laughs> someone with a flamethrower who doesn't care to flamethrow away the smarm so we can look at it clearly. But after you've flamethrown the smarm, after you've destroyed the, the, you know, the, the, the conservative, the right wing gaze in your head, you know, or the lib gaze in your head, um, uh, you know, um, you have to, uh, G A Z E, um, you have to then decide you then have to listen to left anchor. <laughs> you, have to, you, have to, you have to get some taste of, well, where are we headed now? You know? right. And um, not saying you don't do good smarm uh, flamethrowing as well. <laughs> yeah, no. But I think you, you have a, a little bit more than you, co- co- you need to build something new, yes. right? You need both the freedom from and then the freedom to. And uh, that's the, the exciting thing about this time. I think we're 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 finally at a place where people are ready to create a new world together, right? Yes, it's pretty great. Yeah. And so, well, I, I I know you have to run soon, so maybe we'll just give you uh you know a chance to give any any last thoughts. Yeah, um, I, I I wanted to ask you. There, there's just a very cute story in here about Magic the Gathering that I yes. like very much. Um, if you could you, tell tell us this story and uh, you know what what it uh kind of represents about how uh you know people can help each other. In an in institutional context, in the in this case, card games. Yeah, I, I wanted so I have kind of really highfalutin stories in the book. You know, I talk about Evan Wolfson's 32 year fight for marriage equality. I talk about these grand, you know, things of rebuilding a community. But I really wanted to get across that. Commitment is such a superpower magic thing that it works on the goofiest of examples. And I, I don't mean I'm not belittling something by calling it goofy. I just mean, you know, not pro- probably not part of like the grand narrative of saving the world or something. And so I have a goofy example on the individual level of um, the amazing craftsmanship of Mickey Raphael, the harmonica player of for Willie Nelson. I wanted to show that just his commitment to learning the harmonica resulted in him being able to travel around the world and meet all these presidents that even if you just commit to something like as small as the harmonica, the whole world will open up to you. And then on the community level, I have this story about my friend who, you know, he was in medical school and, you know, law students and med students and all these people, you know, it's, it's like everyone's cynical and sad and depressed and lonely. It's like, and everyone just kind of accepts that and says, that's what this is all about, you know, and this is the time in your life where you're sad and cynical and depressed and lonely. But what he decided to do was he decided to uh, go find a Magic the Gathering store and join the Magic the Gathering uh, game there. And there was this place called The Lair in the Bronx near his medical school. (laughs) And he starts playing (laughs) this little hole in the wall shop. The Lair was so not like a profit making enterprise that the club that did the game would like make a quota for each other to buy enough things so that they would meet so that the store would stay in business, which is an example of how commitment begets commitment and grows organically like an ecosystem. So he he joins this group that plays all the time. um, And it's this totally diverse group, which is one of the special things about goofy community groups is you meet people of who are unlike you. You know, he's a med student. There's people who are coming off of like the day shift. There's people who are coming in from the, you know, know, from Staten Island, there's young kids, there's old people, there's far right Republicans. He's like a liberal. And, um, and they start playing, they all become friends. This young kid comes and joins them. They start buying him meals after the games because they saw he didn't have money. They find out that he's kind of living in this bad situation at home. He um, eventually gets kicked out and is homeless on the street and the lair crew takes care of him. And my friend, you know, who was interviewed from this puts him up all because of these connections they made at the lair. And it ends up that he goes to his graduation and he's the only one there. And he becomes like this older brother figure that transforms this kid's life and transformed my friend's life. It's sounding like a Hallmark movie. I'm sorry. But but the point I'm just trying to make is that that all started because someone just said, I'm going to go to this Magic the Gathering 
weekly game and I'm going to go every week. He, he actually grew up in an Orthodox Jewish community and he said it actually reminded him of getting called, oh, we need a 10th man for this prayer. It's like, oh, we need a 10th man for this tournament. And I don't want to connect the two. Like, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to say they're the same, but the spirit of being in community to keep something going, um, is a magical thing. And, um, and, uh, that would be my encouragement to anyone. You know, all these self-help books always tell you, just think about yourself, do these private, independent tips and tricks. You know, if this is going to be said, if this is going to be registered by the Dewey Decimal System as a self-help book, I'll just say this. <laughs> Perhaps one of the ways out, among other things, I don't want to say this is the only thing, is entering into relationship with something bigger than yourself in person with a community of other people on very serious things like DSA and on very goofy things like playing a card game. Um, good things might come of that. Amen, brother. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so don't, you know, don't hesitate to go to your local DSA chapter and don't hesitate to go to the local, uh, you know, board game shop and, you know, yeah. meet, meet some people who probably aren't in DSA you know, there, there, there's some ideological <laughs> right. spade work as, as you, as you say that, you know, from people who probably have not heard of Marx or, or, uh, anybody else, um, in those spaces <laughs> yeah. and, yeah. you know, could, 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 uh, could, could probably stand to learn a little bit about, you know, the new deal, uh, unions and, and so on. And, um, so save yeah. it for a few meetings in. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and love them as the whole person beyond exactly. just, uh, people to be organized, but also organized. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so Pete Davis, uh, the book is called dedicated. Um, we will, we will link, uh, that in the show notes and, um, definitely a great read. I, I highly recommend it. Um, it. It's you know it's it's kind of a you know I feel a little bit nurtured after finishing this this book. You know I I feel like I I, I you know I read a lot of 